our next song on this list is a uh, is a cover song. This one was written by Prince, not specifically written for Cindy Lauper. I, I wanted to uh, research that today because I wasn't sure. He has written songs specifically for artists before. Uh, the song Manic Monday he wrote and he gave to the Bangles. He goes, you know, I think this would be better by you. And boom, hit. I was I was gonna bring bring up the Bangles. How many how many people did he write songs for? Because it's amazing when you think about what his own music library is, and that they found a bunch of songs in the vault after he passed that were unreleased. Mm-hmm. And knowing he was giving songs away, like I've never written an album. You 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 write, mm-hmm. but how many songs have you given away, Scott? Um, I've I've sold three or four. Uh, I've written songs with people in mind, but I, I don't think it's ever gotten to that point where they've taken one. So, you know, because it, it's like, I can write a song for you, but if you don't feel it's for you, then you're not going to, you're not going to go with it. But Prince has written for so many people, but the he kind of made the bangles. I mean, they were the bangs. He saw them as the bangs, just loved them and really turned them into the bangles. And well, do you know why they're the bangles? Do you know that trivia? Why, why they're not the bangs and why they're the bangles? Uh, I've heard the story, but I don't remember because of the Beatles. They, they were oh, like, was that it? Yeah, yeah. It was supposed to be like the Beatles, but like for the girls. So he took the ba- the the bang from their their original name, mm-hmm. and the the Eels was 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 because of the Beatles. Oh wow! Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and I and I didn't know uh, as a side note the song "Eternal Flame." I always thought it was about like this great love, but it's actually about Elvis's flame that's at the uh, uh, Graceland. That's really cool. Yeah, they were visiting Graceland, and um, that's where they got the idea for the song. Like, that's wow! Really cool. But they they framed it in that it's about a person and romance and that sort of thing. They really did a great job of kind of leading you down that path, so you'd identify with it. But yeah, that was actually the inspiration. So I always love finding out, you know, what what the real meaning behind a song is. But this one, um, When You're Mine was, like I said, it was written by Prince. And there's a lot of people that covered Prince's music. So there's a difference between him writing a song for somebody and somebody else coming and saying, I want to do a version of this song. Uh, If Prince says, I wrote this song for you, um, he gets, most likely, I'm sure he'll get a royalty or probably at some point he was just like, I don't care, just do the song. You don't even need to mention it. Because I don't really think he cared about that as much as he did just getting music where it needed to be. You know, but in this case, this is a cover. So this is somebody saying they have to go to the publishers. They have to go to whoever has investment in the song. Like I had to with Lionel Richie to say, here's the song I want to do. Can I release this? Yes or no. And they'll either say yes or no. Then you are you percentages and what the royalty deal is going to be and all that kind of thing. And um, so I, I don't. I, I can't imagine Prince would have said, yeah, I want a lot of money for this. I just don't think, I, I think he was doing well enough on his own to where that just wasn't that important to him. No, I think while you were going, I figured out what the problem is, mm. why people aren't taking as many of your songs as they were Prince's songs. Because I'm not Prince? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, the entire <laughs> issue. Right? Like, I think if you were Prince, it doesn't matter what you write, like, people would just take your music. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yep, very true. Well, I mean, there there is a certain thing when when you're somebody who has an incredible amount of success. If Steve on the street says, hey, I wrote a song I think you should record, people are going to be, oh, yeah, that's great, Steve. Hey, I uh, got to go. I had to get to work or I'm meeting somebody. If John Lennon came to you and said, hey, I've got a song that I think you should do, you're doing that song. You don't even have to like it. If John Lennon said you're doing it, you're going to do it because why wouldn't you? Yeah, and all due respect to John Lennon, um, John Lennon ne- never walked up to Tara Ter- Lee Patrick and was like, from now on, you'll be known as Carmen Electra. And like, <laughs> that's, that's who she's known as for the rest of her life. Yeah. Right. Like th- th- there was a certain um, confidence and a certain, like I've never renamed somebody walking up to them. Right. Yeah. Right? Henceforth, you shall be known as trailblazer. Right. Like, <laughs> I think that's pretty remarkable, right? Like that's the kind of power Prince wielded. So I don't yeah. think it's fair of you to go, well, you know, people took Prince's songs and nobody's taken my, like 
You've never had to rename anybody before. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Maybe I should just go down the strip tonight and just start telling people their name is, you're going to be Benji from now on. Your name is Benji. Here's your new ID. Here's your history. <laughs> you know, I think, I think we, I think we got to work on this a little bit. Like <laughs> Prince renames somebody Carmen Electra. You're naming somebody after, after a second rate dog that doesn't really hold Lassie's <laughs> leash. A second rate dog. <laughs> oh, I got him in a garage sale. What am I going to do? <laughs> Let's take a little bit of a listen to When You Were Mine. there's there's a whole different vocal style on this song and it and and it really does sound like she's singing a little bit more like him we've got a doubled vocal in there but it's it's just she's singing a little bit uh more direct and flat than she usually does and she really replicated i think what prince did on the vocal i think it's funny though because as much as this is a prince song the opening of this feels like it's the most generic opening mm-hmm. we've heard so far. And then when the vocals come in, even though it doesn't sound like her on the other songs, and she's giving you another, you know, you know and we're picking up that she sounds like Prince because we have the knowledge of that. Mm-hmm. I think purchasing this album in 83 and not really reading all the liner notes, um, I would, I, like, I would just be impressed it's like she's showing you another gear yeah yeah for sure but i feel almost like she's singing it as a man uh, yeah a, a little bit um she's definitely she's definitely like you said she's singing flatter um she she she's feels tighter i think is another good way to put it mm-hmm. it's like yeah you know like we were mentioning on the previous song on girls just want to have fun her being a little bit jazzy her feeling the, the song a little bit more mm-hmm. this feels like she is she has somebody else's a song. Like we know that now, so we can say that. Mm-hmm. But she does feel like she's singing a little tighter. Yeah. Um, like she's she specifically restrained herself on this one. But I don't mind it. I really think it complements what the song is doing. I think it takes what was a fairly generic opening. And once her voice kicks in, and her 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 voice and her accent are so distinct. They even even with her being a little bit more restrained, um, it's distinct enough and interesting enough that I think it elevates the song. I would agree with that. I, I think sometimes stepping back a little bit can give something more power than if you're trying to put power into everything you do. Because if you only step back a couple of times or here and there, it, it's almost like when Silent Bob finally speaks. You know, it has so much more of an impact because he's finally saying something You're like, wait, this guy's talking. You know, it, it has that same sort of power to me. What's well, the less is more. It's the same thing. Like we'll go back to like the Jaws analogy, mm-hmm. right? Like you, when, when you finally see the shark, it doesn't matter that the shark is almost walking on top of the boat to get Quint at the end of the movie. Uh, Spielberg makes the comment about like somebody's like, well, won't they think the shark looks fake? He's like, if they're questioning whether or not the shark looks fake at this point, we've already lost the war. Like, yeah, you you know, the less is more makes you buy into more later. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the thing is, you know what she's got in her. So it's not like you're hearing this and saying, well, she's kind of a drab singer or, you know, she's not really feeling the song. I think she's, I think this is a great song. I think they did a great job with it and really kept true to the original, but also it feels like it's her own because the music is just the way that the synthesizers are, the the motion of the song. It really feels like she made it her own while being respectful to Prince's version. 
as an artist, I don't know that Cindy Lauper has a gear that doesn't feel like her own. Like, mm. I don't think that she has that generic gear. Yeah. You know, I think that's part of that uniqueness that we were talking about early on. Mm-hmm. And, and and that flair she has, like her style, all of that, it just oozes through her body. It oozes through her being. And she can't help but that that's going to happen no matter what she's singing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. It's and it's interesting to I can't I wonder how she sleeps at night or how much she sleeps at night because it's really hard to shut off that kind of a brain and just relax. I feel like she's more the I got to grab a couple of hours of sleep because I have to be on set for the next video in in 4 hours kind of person. You know, then she is all right, all right, it's time for bed, time to get my 8 hours. You know, I just I just don't imagine her being that kind of person. But I also feel like great, great legendary singers, right? They have a distinctness and a uniqueness to them mm-hmm. that people will try to imitate. Oh, yeah. But, but but they can't. They just don't have that gear because they can't be that original. Like if you t- if you took a Cindy Lauper impersonator and you said, show me your restrained Cindy Lauper. Mm-hmm. They don't have that gear because they're only doing the caricature of her, right? You, you know, right. and they they, they they may be doing the girls just want to have fun, but this is not a song that they could sing or, or mm-hmm. imitate. Yeah, yeah. Because and when I've heard people cover that song and they try to do those little fill-ins that she does, they feel fake. Right. They feel it's very forced. fake. Yeah, exactly. It, because it's hard to do the caricature, which is an elevated version of anything. Mm-hmm. restrained because by its very nature it's elevated exactly yeah very much so um our next song on the list is one of my all-time not just favorite cindy lopper songs but just favorite songs period uh this was co-written by uh robert uh, i'm sorry rob hyman and cindy herself and this is called you'll all know it time after time This song has one of my all-time favorite lyrics in it, and it comes in in the last verse. It says, uh, after my picture fades and darkness has turned to gray, watching through windows, you're wondering if I'm okay. And I thought, man, that is so powerful. Because how many times in your life do you think, you know, people that you care about or have cared about at one point or another, even if it's been years, they just pop into your head and you'll start thinking about them. Maybe you'll have memories about them or whatever. But uh, you'll just you'll just be that I don't know what this person's got going in their life. I don't know where they are. I don't know if they're still alive. I don't know if they're okay. And uh, that's that's a hard hitting line for a verse for me. Holy shit! This song is so fucking good. Like I, I, I've been dying to say this. Like I hear everything you're saying, but this song is everything. Like it's everything that makes her great as an artist. It's so well constructed, even the way she sings. And like, you think she's going to sing the end of a line and there's going to be a beat and there's not. And she's on to the next verse already. Mm-hmm. Um, everything about the song is just perfect. Yeah. And I, I love the gentle shaker that really is the most predominant instrument through the whole thing. It's just this shaker that's relentless, you know, and it kind of represents the marching of time as well. But when the when the beat kicks in during the chorus, um, it's a really weird beat because the it, it's kicks and rim shots and the shaker and the rim shots stop when the kicks come in. And it's a really weird trade off. It's 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 I'm comfortable with it because I'm used to it. But in a way, it's kind of unsettling and it shows a distance between the two things that should be unified, which I think 
really works beautifully with the message of the song. But I also feel like, you know, usually, especially on Cindy's other songs, the music's kind of a steadying factor. In this particular song, Cindy is the stable instrument and the shaker is the stable instrument Mm -hmm. and everything else gets to play around that. Yeah. Yeah. Great observation. And her line delivery in this too. um, I I say line delivery, that's really more of an acting term, but um, you really feel a depth of emotion in these, in the way that she speaks. She's really singing from the heart. She's acting the song. This this could just as easily be a song on a Broadway play, mm-hmm. right? Like you you where you know, in previous songs, she's feeling the song, right? And, and and she's projecting her emotions. Here she's making you feel the song. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And, and it's a totally different animal. I, and like I get like it's one of my favorites, but I get why you're saying it's your favorite, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is just so good and so well done. And she's doing so much, you know, while kind of being restrained, mm-hmm. but also being Cindy, right? Yeah. I feel she's very in the moment. In, in When she's singing this in the studio, I feel she's very much in the moment. Like she's got her eyes closed. She's not reading the lyrics. She's remembering something. She's feeling an experience when she's singing this. I think this is a nice progression from the previous song. Like we said, she felt very restrained, but it felt a little forced restrained. Yeah. And this is like, it almost feels like that was the preparation for this. I don't know what order they were recorded in or anything, Mm -hmm. but based on how they laid down on the album, it feels like as a listener, the previous song gets me ready for this one because now it's like, okay, this is her being restrained. Oh, this is her being restrained and feeling it. It's mixing what came before on all the other songs and pulling them all together. And I and I feel too that the order of the songs on this album is really important because it's like they took a dip back to be able to prepare for this song by putting When You Were Mine before it. It's like, all right, you're gonna, we're gonna settle things down for a minute. Now we're going to hit you with something really powerful. And it doesn't have to be loud. It doesn't have to be fast. It doesn't have to be heavy. It has to have impact. And this song is 100% impact. If girls want to have fun, if this were a boxing match or a flurry of jabs, this is your, this this is your big hook. This is your uppercut. Like this is, Mm. this, this, this is, this is that power punch of, oh, okay. Like the flurry of jabs will get you and, and 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 they'll keep you busy and they might get you winded, but this is really that 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 finishing move. I would absolutely agree with that. And now I kind of want to take girls just want to have fun and put it to a Rocky montage of him training <laughs> to, to defeat each one of the fighters, like just do a history of all the movies and put it to girls just want to have fun. That's a that's a great Kevin Brown project right there. I, I would I wouldn't mind seeing that at all. <laughs> Yeah, definitely a very emotional song. And and it's interesting because coming out of that one, we're going to go into another song that I feel in a way is is empowering and not in a in a public way, more of a self-empowering. We'll get to why after we play the song, but let's listen to a little bit of Shebop. I can tell you that when this song came out, I was just a little bit too young to understand what it was about. Um, This is basically saying it's okay to masturbate. I mean, it is okay, but it's nice to know that in 1983, somebody thought so because you think about it as such a puritarian 
era of, of pop culture. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And, and, uh, you know, if I remember the video right, and I think Lou Albano was in this one too. Um, it was done in like a 50s style uh, dress looking like, you know, like uh, almost like the outsiders, like the greasers and the socias and the, you know, the hoop skirts and that kind of thing. Uh, I don't remember much more about it than that. I think there was like a really nice looking car, like a sports car or something involved. Um, but I, I, I just thought it was a cool song. Like, I love the music to it. It's got such a great feel to it. Uh, great movement, but I had no idea what she was talking about. No, no, and I, I, at five, I don't think I knew what she was talking about either. <laughs> you were playing with a different ball back when you were five. I'm probably still playing with a different ball now. <laughs> it's a good song, though. It it has a really unique feel to it. There's just something about the mood of the song that grabs me every time. This feels like an '80s club song to me. Like if I were in a club. I walked in in, in in 83. I would expect this song to be playing. Yeah, and you would have been right. I, I remember hearing it at the arcade. Um, many, like they played this and they played Time After Time. I'm sure they played Girls Just Want to Have Fun, but I specifically remember this and Time After Time at the arcade. Um, you know, I, I think that there have been some dance remixes of this song, but you know that typical kind of dance remix that just kills every piece of music that's ever been written. Yeah, no, it's I know I know the type of music you're talking about, and if you ever do a podcast like that, I know at the top of this I said I would come on any podcast you <laughs> invite me on. I would like to um, change my 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 stance a little bit. I would do anything for Scott, but I won't do that. I appreciate that. And unless I title the show Songs That Should Have Never Happened, um, I don't think I'll be really... I am not a big fan of the the dance club thing. I, I guess there's a certain part of me that gets it. But what I don't understand is when they take songs like this or, or like uh, Time After Time or White Flag by Dido and they put a dance beat to it or In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. That was one of the worst ones I've ever heard. You're you're killing what the song is about, and it, that's not meant to be a dance song. That's meant to be an emotional, gut wrenching. Here's what I'm going through kind of song. Why the fuck would you want to dance to that? Look, if 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 you want to do a dance song, like grow some balls, take a typo negative song, you you know, remake, kill all the white people with a dance beat to it, and call mm -hmm. it a day. Yeah, do something that was meant to be like you know have that kind of power to it. But to take, I mean, why don't why don't they just take Getsemane from Jesus Christ Superstar and put a you know put a techno beat to that, and we'll all dance to Jesus in his you know trial out in the desert by himself? Like it just it just makes no sense why they pick some of the songs that they do. Sometimes it's just like they like the they like something about the song, right? I, I see it a lot because because I I've been watching the reels on on Facebook, and every mm -hmm. so often something some horrible thing will come up and i don't i don't want to shit on a dj too too much but like some dj will have this brilliant idea of mashing two songs together and making one song a dance song and it's like well, not everybody should get to do every creative idea that they ever have <laughs> well and that's the problem with the world that we live in today is that it's too accessible um people people need to listen to jeff goldblum in jurassic park when he said just because we can do something doesn't mean we should I tried to, but they just found dinosaur veins. And now I'm really worried that that Jurassic Park thing's coming true sooner rather than later. I heard a couple things. I've heard rumors that they found that the Chinese found an island with small dinosaurs on it. And I've heard that we found dinosaur veins. I don't know what is true anymore well, we because it's like every day something new is happening. I, 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 I've seen that story of dinosaur veins from like three or four different sources. Yeah. So I feel fairly confident that one's true. Uh -huh. I've se I've seen the pictures and it's like it's like a nest of of material that looks like plastic wires, mm -hmm. but it's fossilized dinosaur veins. Yeah, that's more believable to me than oh, by the way, we just discovered an island and it happens to have dinosaurs on it. I I actually feel like not that we're finding new things. I think that our um, equipment's getting a lot more sensitive. Mm -hmm. So where our older equipment might have damaged things like dinosaur veins in the past, and we might not have been known what it was because they've crumbled 
under mm-hmm. the equipment. I think that the equipment now is a lot more delicate and we're uncovering things um, at a lot better rate. I could get on board with that. But where we're at right now, ever since the Chinese weather balloon or the Chinese spy balloon, it seems like every day something new is happening where it was maybe a couple times a month you would hear about something. It just all of a sudden, it just seems like every day now Africa is splitting in half and the whole continent's going to break apart. And we've got another asteroid headed to us. It's going to kill us all this year. It, it's just like the hype of everything is just so escalated all of a sudden. I got an issue here. If we, we catch wind that the asteroid's coming and there's nothing we could do about it, I'm going out by standing out in, in my front yard, yeah, like Schwarzenegger at the end of Predator. Come on, kill me now. <laughs> okay. All right. So before we get back into the music, spe- a, a quick digression. Speaking of Schwarzenegger, now, uh, just what was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday. I recorded a uh, podcast on the album Accidentally on Purpose, which had. Uh, which was by Ian Gillen and Roger Glover and had a song in Rain Man. Incidentally, I think probably because I was doing a search for Rain Man, um, I found a video of Dustin Hoffman being overdubbed visually and vocally through CGI by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And honestly, if I didn't know those scenes, I would think Schwarzenegger was in that movie. Yeah, I've seen I've seen him do that with Schwarzenegger on several other movies. Not that one in particular, but somebody's out there doing that, and it is phenomenal. It's getting scary. I mean, we're never going to know what's real and what isn't anymore. If if we could do like, because people could do face swaps, and it's it's the technology is really amazing, but it's going to get ugly. But this is why physical media is so important. If I could rally for one of the causes right now, mm-hmm. um, Digital stuff, they're going to be able to change so easily. They've been going back and re-editing seasons of Stranger Things to retrofit plot points they hadn't thought about in previous seasons. Really? Yes. And without physical media, we won't have original content. They'll always be able to go back and change stuff. Mm, I don't like that. I I like that. You know, like when when Star Wars came out, that's where we were. I didn't necessarily like the idea of going back and, and releasing a cleaned up version. I don't mind the deleted scenes being added back in and, and telling the full story that he wanted to tell. But, you know, it's it's a mark of the time. It's a record of our history and where we were at the point that it was done. And if we're just going to clean up everything, how are we going to appreciate what we have now if we don't get where we came from? They tried to do that with E.T. by... Um, editing out the guns. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so so unpopular that I think they've now edited them back in. Mm-hmm. Um, well, just, be, just because, like, just because you can change something, like, they can make Jaws look uh, like a realistic shark right now. Mm-hmm. It'd be one of the easiest things, and probably the, one of the things that makes the most sense to do. Yeah, but the craftsmanship that those people put in building a shark in the mid 70s that sort of worked on the water that engineering is so impressive why would you take that away from them and to make it look like it was chasing boats and pulling big kegs of air and i mean that's really i mean even to do that today would be difficult but to have done it back in in that time Yes, they had a lot of problems on set. Yes, production was delayed over and over. But at the end of the day, we got a movie that made people scared shitless of sharks. But ironically, if they remade Jaws today, right, the shark would look realistic. But the barrels wouldn't because the barrels would be digital. (laughs) Right. Right. And the thing that was probably the most tangible thing in that movie would look fake. And we all know that. Or they do what they did in Jaws 4 and make the shark scream, which is a pretty amazing feat since sharks don't have vocal cords. I mean, it didn't scream. It roared. It right? roared, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I think it was like a lion or a tiger roar or something. Like, it was so so out of character, but hysterical. Yeah. It, it, well, I, I think... It... <sighs> I think they would probably try and do the movie to a point where they would ruin it and it would look cheesy instead of serious. I think they would probably take it too far trying to overcompensate for the original Jaws. Just don't touch it. Thankfully, Steven Spielberg will not allow that to happen in our lifetime. So whatever you do with it after I'm dead, I don't care. You do it before I'm dead, I will burn Hollywood to the ground. 
I mean, I I'll let everybody know so they can get out first. But there are honestly worse places for you to burn. So it, it's all right. <laughs> Very good point. Well, that's a that was a great segue for our masturbation song. Let's uh, let's get on to another one. Another uh, song I absolutely love. This one's called "All Through the Night." And this one was written by uh, Jules Shear, who I also don't know anything about. That's how well-researched I am on this show. <laughs> All through the night I'll be awake And I'll be with you All through the night This precious time When time is new One thing I absolutely love about this song is the bass line. That bass is all over the song, and I can't get enough of it. So this is my favorite song on this album, and this is one of my favorite songs of all time. Nice. Um, so, uh, it's weird because as much as I love this song, and it's one of my all-time favorite songs, the synth solo that comes later I always felt was a little bit out of place on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mainly I don't love the synth. I have friends who who would fight me tooth and nail to to the grave that I'm wrong. Um, so it's not it's not a hill I'm willing to die on, but but <laughs> but it's like my one minor gripe in in a song. I absolutely adore her vocals, the bass line, like everything about this song is just so good. And to me, this is Cindy at the height of her powers. I, I I imagine you're going to say yes to this, but I, I want to know if you feel the same way I do. I feel like I'm the one she's singing to, that we're in the room together, that we are in this moment together. And I, I don't know what it is, how she does that to me, but I feel like I'm the one in the song. See, see and what, what I'm hoping for is I feel like Whoever my next girlfriend or, or woman I go out with, or whatever, whatever whatever you call significant other is, that she's singing to us, and we're mm-hmm. doing some slow dance somewhere, and, and, and we're being serenaded by Cindy Lauper, and that's what it feels like to me. Is it's about you and whoever is that person to you, and she's serenading the couple. I do see the potential for this song, and I'm sure somebody must have licensed this somewhere for one of those kind of scenes where the two people are dancing really slow and looking at each other's eyes. And uh, this song had to have been put in a movie or some television show or something somewhere. But I, I see what you're saying, and and I hadn't really considered it that way. But now that you're saying that, yeah, I totally see it. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know that I picture that Cindy Lauper would ever be singing to me, like. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I also like we, we established earlier your your devilish good looks. <laughs> I, I I don't have the same problems you have, Scott. So I don't think that Cindy Lapper's ever like coming up to me and serenading me. I'm glad that you have the ego to stroke where where, <laughs> where you feel this way. Yeah, that that is it. I am very heavy on ego. Uh well, I mean, you know, we can dream. Right. It can't always be Debbie Gibson. Sometimes it has to be somebody else. Oh, for for, for me, yeah. I mean, Debbie Gibson, Cindy Lauper. I would love for any of them to be singing to me, but I feel like they're probably singing to my neighbor. <laughs> and you're right? just hearing it. And I well, I'm sitting there thinking it's me, and then I go outside, I see my neighbor, and they run up to my neighbor. I'm like, oh, that makes more sense. I'm just happy when I talk to a woman, I don't get pepper sprayed. I mean, pretty pretty pleasant night. I actually don't mind the pepper spray. I like, I like my food a little spicy. <laughs> well, you get used to it after a while, right? You build up a tolerance to it. I have only been maced one time, and that was when I was working at Seven Eleven. And uh, a kid came. I, I, it was in Denver, and it was literally my store was a dividing line between two gangs. 
And so we had a lot of theft at our store. And this kid walked in and, and he's like, um, he goes and mics some burritos and he brings them to the counter. I bring them up. I'll be like, that'll be 544. He goes, no, it won't. And just pulled the mace up from underneath the counter, sprayed me right in the face with it, grabbed the burritos and ran out the door. And I'm thinking, you could have just run out the door. Like, I literally would not have chased you. I would not have cared. I would have just written another police report, like the three I've already written tonight. Uh, but I have to say the police were very responsive and you know, fortunately I was okay. There was, there was no permanent damage, but yeah, I got, I got mace for $5 and 44 cents in frozen burritos. That seems like it's one of the most unnecessary assault cases I've ever heard of. <laughs> it really is. I, that is something that you could put in one of your stories because I mean, it's just that ridiculous that it doesn't sound real, but I it, think it was more a gang initiation thing than an actual, like, I want to do this to this guy. I think it was, you need to prove yourself, go assault the clerk and grab burritos or something. And in fairness to Scott, right now I I have complimented his ro ro roguish handsomeness several times on this podcast already. Yes, you have. Thank right? you. But I also feel like if Scott and I were in the same room, and I'm not a large man by any stretch of the imagination, but I feel like if I were playing darts in a bar, I might accidentally pick up Scott and mistake him for one of the darts. <laughs> But I'm six foot four with a vivid imagination. I mean, you're 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 probably four foot six with with, with some of the some of the the most glowing smile I've ever seen. You're you're basically Derek Zoolander in a in a very short body. I I did pay extra for the booster seat. They're not only available in restaurants. <laughs> I bought it from a restaurant supply store. <laughs> I, I I heard a rumor there's like six phone books in your car. <laughs> that may or may not be true. I'm not even sure anymore. I, I've buried them under a blanket. Uh, yeah, no, but uh, it, it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was a gang initiation thing, but it was one of those moments where you're like, this is just stupid. Like, why is this even happening to me? You know, and then, and then I think it was two weeks later when I got stabbed, but that's the story for another day. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, tales from the 7-Elevens feel like that's a podcast coming soon. Let me put it this way. When when uh, the show Cops came out, which was shortly after I quit working there, and their their episode in Denver, they passed by that store three times. Well, well, well that tracks based, based on the, your work history. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they heard of me. But it's it's uh, but all through the night is such a beautiful song. Um, the, you're right. The the synth uh, solo does feel a little bit out of place. I almost feel like it was a temp solo. And nobody came up with anything better or they left the wrong solo in because it feels almost like like all of a sudden I'm in the video for safety dance. And it's just this this, you know, munchkin that's jumping around from the heel of one foot to the heel of another. And then it gets back into the seriousness of the song. It does take me out of it a little bit. I I know the two big hits are girls just want to have fun. And time, time after time, and mm -hmm. I, I know Shebop's also a huge hit. Yeah, I think if the synth solo were something else, or just not in the song, I don't know that it's close on how big of a hit this would have been. Mm -hmm. Right? I think that this runs laps over those. If that's anything different in there. Right. I know it got a lot of radio play in the 80s. It was it was on a lot. But as far as but that doesn't necessarily make it a chart topping but, success. You yeah, know, I just go on chart topping success. I'm go. I'm basing it on like I go to my friend's house. What songs do I hear? Mm. Right. Right. And we all love this song, but I don't hear this song as much as those other two. Is that what is that the thing that kills it for you? Or is there something else about the song no, that doesn't quite no, work? No, 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 no. That's the only thing in the song that doesn't work for me. Mm. I don't think it kills it, but I feel like that's why. Where I, wherever I've been in my life, I don't hear this song as frequently as those songs. Well, you know what it is? It's a it's a happy dance solo. It's not a romantic solo, and this song is is an emotional connection. And you don't just put on a party song but, in the middle of an emotional connection. But, but I'm also comparing it to time after time. That's true, right? Like I'm I'm, I'm making a, a point of saying those two songs, mm -hmm. and I'm putting this behind those two songs. 
Which honestly is still not a bad place to be. I mean, that's that's like saying, you know, what's what's the best song or, you know, what's the worst song on Abbey Road? Right. Yeah, well, they're but, all but, damn good. But I, I think that there is some power behind the song. Mm-hmm. Those other two tracks lack. Yeah. I almost feel like when the solo comes on, I just kind of zone out and then come back to her and go, wait, what were you saying? Th- th- that's exactly what I'm talking about. And if that yeah. weren't there and you didn't zone out, imagine how much bigger this song would be. Yeah, no, I, I totally see what you're saying. And I mean, you could you could have done something, you know, sweet and thoughtful and and, and that was since. Um, this was just kind of like too bouncy and too too happy, I think. I think it works. I don't think it works for this song. I agree. Yeah, it's a cool solo, but not not on this it, within this context. I would agree with that. Um, our next song, we start getting into. Um, I'm going to say we'll, we'll we start getting into the unusualness of Cindy as the album goes on. This next song is called Witness. And this is written by uh, Cindy herself and John Turrell. sudden we're in the caribbean we've got some latin percussion instruments going on uh with the the synths that we've been hearing completely different subject matter we're off of the romance all of a sudden which is fine um but boy this this really all of a sudden i feel like we're on a different album but but it's funny because it almost feels like an early ska song to me hmm you know it feels a little bit like early ska um i feel like Blondie touched on this genre as well at times. Um, like it, it's the music we've heard before, you know. Like, if, if you compare this to like The Tide is High, right? Mm-hmm. It's a sl- slower version, but I feel like it's the same wheelhouse. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Um, so, so while it feels like it's a departure, I think at this point in the album, she's earned that, mm-hmm. right? Like, we think about the mega hits we've gotten. That became mega hits off of this album already. So she knew, or she thought she knew what she had, right? But she was confident mm-hmm. in what she had early to right. take a risk and a chance here like this. And it's kind of like what we talked about with Jaws and, and like earning that. Mm-hmm. She earns this at this point in the album to take this risk. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's a good song. It's just, I feel like, wow, this is such a different feel from everything that we've heard so far. Definitely something that would have been an album track. Yeah, no, it, it, it's very unique. It's not one that feels like they're going to release as a single. Mm-hmm. It's one that if you're, or you become a Cindy Lauper fan, it's going to be one of your go-tos. It's like when we do our little Aerosmith podcast, right? You know, you're, you're learning more and more about that band, but Corey and I have our deep cut favorites. Mm-hmm. that you know are inexplicable other than as a fan they hit you a certain way and it's something you kind of own because it was never really released to the masses right i'm just glad that we all agree that the movie is the greatest song that aerosmith ever did i don't know we're not talking about aerosmith tonight so we are <laughs> not fighting my friend <laughs> that is an ongoing battle that we've had since i came on the show i think i was still a guest when i uh when that when we spun that song Scott's favorite Aerosmith song doesn't feature Steven Tyler at all. He's he was in the room. <laughs> <laughs> he probably That's wasn't right. actually. <laughs> or, or, or he's doing some kind of filler instrument on there, right? Um, but but it's 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 not his instrument. It's not his vocals. And ironic, yeah, ironically, the talking isn't even him, right? It was it was two voice actors, which I find funny. 
Um, yeah, this is a good song, though. I, I still like the song. I just think it's a, it's a real surprise. Like if you're listening to the album and all of a sudden you get to this song, you're like, wow, what is this? Like it kind of takes you out of that, you know, comfortable zone that we've been in all of a sudden we're like okay this is something different now we're hearing different sounds and different textures from Cindy. love the rim shots and the delays on that on the beat really cool but i don't know that cindy comes off as a personality that wants you to feel comfortable all the time she doesn't dress like somebody who wants you to be comfortable she wants to challenge you yeah and the song challenges you and Look, I think I think that's great, and I think that's what makes a great album. Sometimes, mm-hmm. is you, like you could take this risk and miss, yeah. And whether or not you love this song or you like this song, I don't think many people dislike this song. Yeah, I would. It's not one that I I often say, God, I really want to listen to Witness, but if I'm playing the album, I'm going to play it, right? And that's that to me is a good risk, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you have that risk. And it's like I'm not going to skip that thing. I might, I might not actively seek it out, right? But I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not kicking it out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. I think that's a win. Very true. And I mean, after all, the the title of the album is "She's So Unusual." Not here's a comfortable collection of songs. So right. you would kind of expect a little bit of risk, but but for it to be her first album, I think it's a bold play. Oh, and I think that's part of what makes her great and part of what builds the legend of Cindy Lauper is yeah. she takes this risk like this and it's a confidence, right? Like I'm gonna keep leaning on that word right now, confidence. Yeah. Um, because I think th- I think it's apt for, for what she's doing and, and, and how she's performing and how she, how she's um how, how how she's revealing herself to us. What I would really be curious to know, being that this was her debut album, is how much was her, how much was the producer, how much was the record company? Because we know that now she's 100% in control of her decisions. But I wonder, as a debut artist, how much she did because it was what she wanted to do and how much she did because the record company said, we're going to have you cover the song, or the producer said, this is a good one for us to do. And she's like, okay. I'm doing my first album. I don't have, I'm not Cindy Lauper yet. I don't have that power to make decisions. I would be curious to know where, like where that all fell. This particular choice doesn't feel like a, a, a safe production choice. Right. So if I had to guess, I would think she had that voice pretty early on. Because unless she had an ally in the room fighting for this and pushing for this, um, it had to be her. That's why that's why that question came to mind, because it seems like this would not necessarily be a decision a producer would make. A producer would want to make really safe decisions. Like once you establish yourself and you've got your, you know, your whole look and everybody's accepted you, then we can start being experimental. But for the first album, you got to be solid right out of the gate. That would be my expectation of what a producer would do. Maybe in, in the case of whoever took this project on said, you know what, you're weird. Let's play with that. And I think that, that could have been the case too, is somebody knew what they had with Cindy and leaned into it. Um, yeah. That's the only other explanation. It's either she drove she drove this mm-hmm. or somebody knew what they had with her but probably more likely a little bit from column A and a little bit of column B. Yeah, I, I tend to think that must be what it is because I just, I, I mean, I don't know who she was before she made this album. So I don't know how much say she had walking into the production of this. You know, I don't know wh- when she really became to have that power. She was coming off of her band. I forget the band's name, but her band had broken up shortly before this. And um, I don't know how much say she had coming out of that, how how much leverage that gave her. But Mm -hmm. I do know that's kind of where we're at is um, she had her band and I should have done a little bit more research or had a better memory to remember the name of the band. But she, she, uh, she had that going for her before this. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I I mean, it's, I, I would be curious if anybody out there knows like how the production of this went, uh, drop me a note. I'd be curious to know exactly, um, you know, how decisions were made on this album, because 
it's so it's so uniquely her but at the same time like she this is her first solo album and it's 80s i don't know you know i don't know how the record company felt about things i don't know how the producer felt about things so i would be very curious if anybody has any details on that so 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 two things i just looked it up really quick blue angel was her band from um a 79 to 80 mm-hmm. and cindy would have been about Depending on how how because it was released in eighty three, so let's say she records this in eighty two eighty one, so she's like twenty eight or twenty nine when she records this. She's that she old did, already. She, she at this point, she she was born in fifty three. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, so 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 she definitely has her own voice. At the, she's not a kid recording this. Is kind of the point I'm making. I really thought she was like 20 to 22 when she recorded this album. She seems so young and vibrant and experimental and you know what I mean? Well, she is youthful. Yeah. You you know, but it's like, it's almost like she develops, I don't want to call it a character because it is her, Mm -hmm. but there is this maturity with her decision-making that comes with somebody at, at that age, like in your, in your late twenties, early thirties, is when you really start to develop who you are. True. Right? Like, even though we consider 18 an adult, we both know what what, what those early to mid-20s are like. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So 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 I think that she's making some decisions here with a lot more authority. And that's probably why, is, is the age. That's very possible. See, I'm picturing like a 21-year-old going into the studio, writing these songs or or, you know, picking the covers and that. And I'm really thinking that she's more like, okay, that's what you want me to do. Okay, I'll do it. And like my time will come. But by the way, she was 28. That's a that's a different story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, born in 53, albums released in 83. So and, so and it was late 80, it was like a mid-October. So she probably did yeah. record it in 83. Yeah, so 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 you you talk, you're talking a 30 year old woman, 29, 30 year old woman recording this album. At that point, as an artist, she has to know what she wants and what she's doing. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's a it's I mean at 30, that's a pretty amazing career that she started off on uh, with this album for sure. Mm-hmm. 